Yesterday, or last evening, we talked about God's face unveiled, or rather veiled, and how Jesus came in veiled form, that is, he veiled the glory of God, and he came to reveal the truth about God in such a way that we could see him face to face, we could actually see God face to face, unafraid, without dying. And we focused a little bit on Exodus 33 and 34, where you remember that Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face because no one, no human being can see my face and live. And I asked the question, what is so terrifying or so lethal about seeing God's face? And we haven't clearly answered that question yet, but we probed it a bit. We came to the conclusion that the glory of God is the glory of his character because when God showed Moses his glory, he revealed his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving transgression and sin. Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation? And that's obviously always a fearsome ending to those beautiful words, but actually what they mean is that God will limit the consequences of our sinfulness as it moves from generation to generation. And the best illustration of that, of course, is the illustration that we have from the area of parenting and abuse. An abused child will most often grow up to be an abuser of his own children or her own children. We call that the cycle of abuse. And studies have shown that at least in sexual abuse, the third or fourth generation usually turns that cycle around and stops it. Which is kind of a fulfillment of God's words that he will not let evil go beyond certain boundaries that he sets. And, of course, in the other passage where those words are mentioned in the Ten Commandments, we have those words, and showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That is, that even with the first and second generation, God works and works to try to change things around. So what we see in those words is that God is the kind of person that is full of graciousness, mercy, compassion, That is his glory, the glory of his character. Now, why could we not see his face then? Because of that glory. I went back to the Garden of Eden and we talked about how Satan's original propaganda, his brainwashing technique, was to deceive Adam and Eve into thinking that God was an abuser. The subtle message there from the tree of knowledge of good and evil by the serpent is a paradigm, you might say, of an abuser. It's a portrait of an abuser. Someone who can't be trusted to tell the truth. Someone who is good sometimes and evil other times. Someone who um, threatens you with punishment if you disobey. Someone who selfishly withholds something from you doesn't let you eat of it because he knows that you'll become like him, equal to him in power. He wants to keep you in a powerless state. Those are all the deceptions from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The deceptions add up to the portrait of God as an abuser. 
And what happens when our picture of God is one of an abusive parent? We become abused children, right? And then we begin to abuse one another. And so you move on into the story, and Adam and Eve begin to abuse each other, blame each other for the fall. What I'm suggesting, of course, is that sin is not something I do with my hands merely, or with my eyes, or with my mouth, with my feet. Sin is a destructive deranging of my reasoning and cognitive abilities. Sin actually is a form of insanity. Because Adam and Eve became paranoid of God in the garden, did they not? They ran from him in terror. They knew that they were naked. That's what made them afraid. Were they naked before? Of course. But something happened. When they rejected the truth about God, they rejected the light that had enshrouded them that enabled them to perceive the truth about God. And without that light, they saw him as an enemy. And so when he came to the garden to see them, they ran from him and hid from him in terror. The terror was unfounded. God is not an abusive person. So what do you do when your children run from you in fear? And I said last night that Jesus came as God, veiling himself to reveal the Father, that we might know him not as an abusive Father, but as just like Jesus. That's what led Jesus said to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why Jesus came, and and Ellen White makes that very clear, that the whole purpose of his mission was to reveal the character of the Father. Now, the problem is that his life alone could not deal with all our fears. One of the last uh, passages that we looked at, and I hope you brought your Bibles this morning because we will be using them. Um, Turn with me to 1 John. verse 18. Maybe I should back up to verse 17. That's that's a good lead-in, especially for us Adventists who've always been afraid of the judgment. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with what? Punishment. Remember when you were a child and you did something you knew you shouldn't? Did you go smilingly up to your mother and say, guess what I did? You tried to hide the evidence, right? Why? You were afraid of punishment. Are we afraid of punishment with God? That brings us to this one statement that the serpent made to Adam and Eve that has haunted us down through the centuries and which the life of Jesus alone could not answer. That one statement you will not surely die. Now you remember that God said to Adam and Eve, you are not to go near 
the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of any other tree in the garden, but this one tree, you are not to go and eat of the fruit because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What did he mean by that? Was the fruit poison? Would it kill them? If you had been Adam and Eve, what would it mean to you for God to say that? We know what death is, or we think we do. We see it on the highway all the time, dead animals. We see it on the news all the time, dead people. Some of us have experienced the painful realities of death. In fact, most of us have. We know what death is, but did Adam and Eve know what death was? Had the angels ever seen anyone die? How would you describe death to your children? You remember when the first time you was you learned about someone dying? It's a very bewildering thing to a child. I remember when I was five years old, my father's best friend who lived across the street from us died of a heart attack early in the morning. And the response of my life was total bewilderment. It felt like a bee sting. You know, the bee stings you and flies away and you never see him. It felt about like that. It was haunting, and I got afraid that maybe my father might not wake up some morning. Death is incomprehensible when you've never experienced it. So what did God mean to Adam and Eve when he said, you will surely die? You can see how that left the door open. Having never seen death, what were they supposed to make of those words? So the serpent said, ha, you will not surely die. And now you have a real problem. He's, he has suggested that God is a liar. And if, you're, if God is a liar, you can't trust him. So what did God mean when he said, you will surely die? That sin doesn't lead to death? What then? If God is going to prove the trustworthiness of his words, how is he going to do it? Kill Adam and Eve? God didn't say, if you eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden on that day, I will kill you. He said, you will surely die. And the problem is that the serpent throughout time has continued to work with his original lie. He has twisted and turned it into every conceivable possible description of a tyrannical God. He has used it to convince us that we don't really die when we die. He has used it to convince us that in the end, God is going to kill us. He has used it to convince us that since we really won't die when we die, God is going to torture some of us for eternity in hell. And he has used it to convince us combined with all the other uh, lies that he gave us, he's used it to convince us that God is a torturing, angry deity. Can you trust a God like that? I want to paint a picture for you. You're sitting at home in your living room some evening, and there is a knock at the door, and you meet a man you've never seen before. And he says to you, 
may I come in? Well, something alerts you that you're a little hesitant. And so you say, may I help you? And he says, well, um, my car got stopped up the road and I need to make a phone call. And so you let him in. The next thing you know, he's demanding money from you. And he's making you feel very frightened and uncomfortable. And he's telling you, you surrender to me. And he has a gun and he's holding it to your head. Surrender or die? Would you surrender? Would you trust him? Would you love him? Well, let's paint the picture a little differently. I love to do this in the classroom uh, because of the age group I'm teaching. Uh, you're in college, and you and your girlfriend have been dating for a good six months, and you decide it's time. You know her pretty well. I know that six months isn't very long, but I'm not sure this generation what the age, the uh, the amount of time is. But anyway, you take her out at a beautiful little restaurant in Yauntville. Um, the lights are just right. They've been dimmed appropriately in your part of the restaurant, which is a corner. And you've given her, you have dined her. You haven't wined her, but you have dined her. And you have posed to her the question, do you love me? She thinks for a moment, of course I love you. Will you marry me? Mm, I'm not sure. So you prod and you poke and, and you push and, and you plead. You're ready to get on bended knee. And finally you say, pulling out a knife, love me or I'll kill you. Marry me or I'll kill you. Would you expect her to say, yes, I do? That has actually happened. I read a story of a woman whose fiancé proposed to her and threatened to kill her if she would not marry him. Terrified, she did agree to marry him. They were married long enough to produce, I believe, a couple of little girls. And she kept telling her mother, I know he's going to kill me. Take the girls if he does. And she, her mother couldn't believe he would do such a thing. And one day it happened. He killed her. It does happen in our pretty sick world. Now, what would you think if someone did that to you, who demanded your love, your trust, and your loyalty, or they would kill you? What would we think of someone who asked you to marry you, marry them forever and ever, so long as life shall last? or they would kill you. We would, we would sit in horror at any college student who made such a decision, wouldn't we? Now, let's transpose that picture to an evangelistic series. Do I dare do that? You keep the seventh day Sabbath. You trust and love God with all your heart. Or, what will he do to you at the end? Well, we don't believe in an ever-burning hell, right? The nice Adventist view is that it will last only as long as the person deserves. So God will torture you to death, but he won't, it won't be forever. He won't torture you forever, just as long as you deserve. 
What did God mean when he said, On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve didn't die that day. They actually had something instead, and God brought it into the garden, a lamb. And I often ask people, who killed that first lamb, God or Adam? And I'll always get the both answers. Some will say, God did it, Adam did it. Ellen White actually says both. Some places she says, God did it. Some places she says, Adam did it. Um, but she does make the statement that it was the sinner who was to kill the lamb. Now, of course, so we know that the lamb represented Christ. We know that God used that lamb to provide clothing for Adam and Eve to take away their shame. It didn't change the truth in God's eyes. It only changed the truth for themselves. But beyond that, who killed that first lamb? I think both God and Adam did. And the reason I think that is because I think Adam got nervous at the very end and he couldn't go through with it. And the only way he could do it is for God to take his hand and help him do it. Ellen White says that when that first, those first leaves fell from the tree, that they grieved more than they grieve, when we grieve today over the loss of loved ones. Can you imagine every fall going through that kind of grief? Uh, enormous grief. Because they had seen perfection. We haven't. We have grown up. We begin to die as soon as we we're born. In fact, probably before. So we kind of live with death all the time. But for Adam and Eve, it was a terrible, terrible shock. And what did that mean for Adam to kill that lamb? Here's death. Who done it? What did it? Ellen White makes a statement in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. The sacrifices were intended to impress upon the fallen race the solemn truth that it was sin that caused death. That it was sin, not God, who caused death. Now we need that lamb, that illustration of the lamb, later on when we talk about what it means when sinners die. Beyond that, what happened during those first thousand years after sin entered our world? Nothing. God didn't do anything, did he? Well, people did a lot of things. That abusive system continued into Adam and Eve's family. And the first very poignant and tragic story took place when Cain abused his brother Abel and murdered him. And I personally believe that the story alludes to the idea that Cain was so jealous of Abel because of his sacrifice being accepted. And he was so angry at God for making his parents leave the garden, he saw God as Satan pictured him, as an abusive parent, angry, vengeful, unforgiving, and severe. And it led him to become that way himself toward his brother. And so he said, Okay, God, you want blood? Here's the blood of my brother Abel. And he slew him as a sacrificial animal. And that was the first human sacrifice. As a result of Cain's murdering his brother, we had a self-perpetuating cycle of abuse 
that went generation after generation after generation until the earth became filled with violence and every imagination of the thoughts of men's hearts became evil only continually. They couldn't think a good thought. And so God sped up the process. That's what my colleague down the hall, Donald John, says about the flood. They were going to kill each other off to the last person, the last human being, which, by the way, is possible to have happen. There's a little valley in Arizona, most of you probably have never heard of, called Pleasant Valley. And one day, there were just two families living in there, the Tewksbury's and the Grahams. My parents will probably correct me on these facts. But uh, as I recall, the Tewksbury family uh, and the and the Graham family both raised sheep. But one day, the Grahams brought in cattle. Or maybe it was the Tewksbury's. But anyway, one of the two families brought in cattle. And if you know anything about... I'm sorry. They both raised cattle, and then one family brought in sheep. Now I'm getting my facts right. <laughs> I had to reverse that. Sheep graze down to the roots. They leave nothing behind for cows. And the other family who hadn't brought in sheep were very, very upset. And it ended up becoming the famous Pleasant Valley Wars of Arizona. You probably never heard of those wars. They were fought between these two families, the Tewksbury's and the Grahams, shot each other off till there was just one Graham and one Tewksbury left. And they met in a Mesa courthouse down in the valley of Phoenix. Mrs. Graham had a sawed-off pistol in her muff. She was waiting for Mr. Tewksbury in this courthouse, and she pulled out that gun to shoot him, only it caught the trigger caught in her handkerchief, and they caught her before she could actually do it. But there they were, ready to kill each other off to the very last person. We are capable of that kind of violence. And the earth became so violent that they would have killed each other off to the last person. But God intervened and said, I'm going to save who I can and speed up the process. This is torture. And so he sent the flood. And the angels asked, Okay, God, is that what you meant when you said, You shall surely die? And God said, No, that's not what I meant. If I hadn't done it, they would have. I wanted to save them the torture. So, God later on in Genesis burns up Sodom and Gomorrah. And the angel said, ah, now we have fire. Is that it? Is that what you meant when you said, you shall surely die? And God said, no, that's merely a symbol. By the way, that's the term Ellen White uses for the, for the, uh, burning of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a symbol of the final death. God sent plagues on the Egyptians, and the angel said, Is that it? You killed the firstborn. Is that what you meant when you said you shall surely die? Nadab and Abihu died on the temple floor. Is that it? You said no one can see your face and live. They couldn't come into your presence and live. Is that it? God said, No, that is not it. And as you move through the Old Testament, you find God turning more and more to natural consequences. The plague of snakes, for example, that bit the people. That was something that could have happened every day, but God protected them from it. He simply withheld his protection. Um, 
he keeps turning more and more to natural consequences, and the angels keep saying, is that it? Is that it? And God says, no, that's not it. Tell me, have we ever seen it? Have we ever seen what God told Adam and Eve about when he said, you shall surely die? Well, if you turn to Romans 1, I mean, sorry, Romans 3, you find out Paul's answer to that question. If you look at verse 25, that God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice of atonement in his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. That is, for all those thousands of years, God passed over former sins, leaving a question, what is it? What is it God meant when he said, you shall surely die? If you back up in chapter 3 there, Paul talks about how God, Jesus' death, was in order to prove the righteousness, the truth of God's words. What words is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the words of the covenant to Abraham. But I believe this has a bigger meaning. When was God most fervently charged with lying? In the Garden of Eden, by the serpent. So what we have here is God's answer. See, God didn't ask us to demonstrate the truthfulness of his words. And Ellen White has a a beautiful way of putting that. She says, at the beginning of the angels, at the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this, meaning the final destruction of the wicked. Had Satan and his hosts then been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as evil seed to produce this deadly fruit of sin and woe. The point is that had God left Adam and Eve in the garden to reap the immediate consequences of their darkness of mind that came as a result of believing Satan's lies about God, they would have perished. But it would not have been clear how they perished. And a doubt would have remained. You see, if God arbitrarily killed them, then sin isn't what kills people. The problem then is with God, not with sin. And when we transfer the problem from sin to God, we become more focused on getting in good with him, on placating him, on making sure we've earned his favor, on finding some way, some substitutionary way of getting him off our back so that we can have some kind of assurance of eternal life. Instead of realizing that the problem is a sickness of mind called sin and that sin is deadly and will destroy us. It's like if a patient came, I'm going to pick on Randy here. If a patient came to Randy 
and he had he had inoperable cancer. What would Randy think if the patient said, "Are you going to kill me because I smoked all my life?" Well, we know that Randy wouldn't kill the patient. We know that smoking is what would kill the patient. Now, that's a weak illustration because sin is more than just doing something to myself. It is how I think in my mind that produces that deadliness. Do you see how we have maybe obscured the issues? We have seen things through much through Satan's eyes. And we have come to see God as the problem instead of sin. And thus we want to get in good with God and hang on to our sins in the process. So how did Jesus die? If Jesus is the example, is the illustration, is the demonstration of what God meant when he said, you will surely die, how did Jesus die? Did God torture his son at the cross? How do we know? Um, Sometimes when I preach this sermon, I like to have either the opening or closing hymn, the song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Because I am convinced we've come up as Christians with many models and many theories on how Jesus died and why he died. But all of them are theories. The truth is that only a theory that puts us at the foot of the cross, or better yet, from the Garden of Gethsemane, through Jesus' words, it is finished, and his death. Only a theory that does that really gives us the truth. We can spend all kinds of theories based on our own worldviews, based on our own experiences. But until we stand at the foot of the cross and watch Jesus die, we're not really going to understand what God meant when he said, you will surely die. If we understand that Jesus died the death that God warned Adam and Eve about and that the wicked will experience at the end, then we're several questions. Where's the fire? Did Jesus burn at the cross? Well, it depends on which view you have. According to some, Jesus went down into hell during Sabbath. He didn't rest in the tomb. He went down and completed the full penalty of sin and experienced hell for 24 hours. Now, that's not our view. We don't tend to hold that. We believe that Jesus rested in the tomb for 24 hours over Sabbath. So where was the fire? And why didn't Jesus experience that? If that's what destroys the wicked at the end, where is the fire at the cross? Well, if you start with the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember Jesus' prayer to his Father? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup was he talking about? We're going to talk this evening about that cup, the cup of God's anger. So Jesus tasted the cup of God's wrath. He drank it to its full. 
What was God's wrath that Jesus felt in Gethsemane? Well, if you were to look at Romans 1, a few chapters over from where we were. And look at verse 18. I use Ellen White's hermeneutical principle that one passage is the key to open up and unlock the understanding of other passages. And I think this passage is the key. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That means we're going to see what it is, right? It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. We read most of the rest of that last night. We're going to jump down then to verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up Verse 26 and verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. It never says God got angry with them and he tortured them as long as they deserved. It says he gave them up. What did God do to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? I'll turn to Romans 4.25. And unfortunately, you won't find the truth in any version that you have, including mine. Um, I wish you all had Greek New Testaments right now. But I'm going to give it to you as it is in the Greek. Who was given up for our trespasses, or because of our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. Who was given up. Same words you find in Romans 1. And I've always wondered, in fact, I did my master's thesis on this whole problem, on the righteousness of God and the atonement and so on in Romans. And I kept puzzling, where did Paul get this use of this verb to give up? Because it's used in the Gospels in a different sense, the handing over Jesus to the trial. But here it's used in a much different sense, and Paul uses it five times in the book, well, actually in all of his books, to refer to Jesus' death. And several times he says, God gave up his son, Romans 8, for example. And what does he mean? And why did he get that? And years and years later, after I did my master's thesis, I was musing over Psalm 53, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, um, in the Greek Septuagint. That's the Greek Old Testament translated in Egypt for Hebrews who could no longer speak Hebrew. And as I was looking through it, I found that word used to refer to the death of the suffering servant three times. Exact same number of times it's used in Romans 1. And I said that's where Paul got it, because Paul used the Greek Septuagint. It is the proper term for describing what happened when Jesus died. He was given up, period. He was let go. When your child is about to run in front of a car, What's your instinctive way, what thing to do? Rush out and grab him and keep him from it. If you don't, what have you done? You've let him go. Have you done anything to him to hurt him directly? You let him have his choice. That's what it means to give up, to let go. But there's a little nuancing here. When God gave up his son, 
Ellen White graphically depicts that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he withdrew his beams of life, love, and mercy. Why? What happened in the Garden when we accepted Satan's lies about God? Our minds became darkened. We rejected the light of God's beams of love and mercy and perception. And our minds went into darkness of unbelief, a darkness of believing something about God that wasn't true. That is what Jesus had to experience. In order to experience sin, he had to experience being without God, being without the knowledge of the truth about God, being in that same state of darkness that Adam and Eve were plunged into at the believing of Satan's lies. The believing, having that same experience of darkness that the wicked will at the end when God fully gives them up to their own destructive ways of thinking. And you remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane? My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. We don't take those words seriously. What he meant is, I am so filled with anguish that I am about to die. And one of the versions of Mark has the account that Jesus fell dying to the ground, that great drops of sweat formed on his forehead like blood drops. In fact, they were drops of blood. So great was his mental agony. I had a student this last quarter write me a paper for one of the classes that he took from me. He wrote it on the crucifixion. And he went for the physiological and medical evidence about what led to Jesus' death. And he discovered some very interesting things. But one of the things he said that haunts me to this time, this, this student was fulfilling an incomplete for me because he had such severe depression that he had to be put on psychotic drugs in order to, he, did, he wasn't psychotic, but he had to be put on drugs that strong in order to keep him from such intense physical pain because his depression caused intense physical pain so that he could hardly stand it. And he couldn't, he, the, the drugs made him so much of a zombie he couldn't come to class half the time. So I worked with him, gave him an incomplete, and tried to help him get through. Well, this paper was in response. It was very well done. What he said in there will always haunt me. He said that he has been, at times, known to be so depressed and so much pain that he has had bloody sweat on his forehead without a break in the skin. I mentioned that to my physician. I had happened to see him recently. I mentioned that to him, and he said it's been documented. It is possible. Jesus suffered that great in mental anguish that he should have died in Gethsemane, you remember an angel came to strengthen him so that he could go up, get up, and do it again at the cross. Why at the cross? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I draw all to myself. It had to be public. And so Jesus went through all of the tortures again. And at the cross, the whole universe stood in silence. Angels of God, angels of Satan, all gathered together at the cross to wait and see 
what God meant when he said, you will surely die. They didn't see God lay a hand on him. In fact, Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As for, for all intents and purposes, even though the Father was at the cross, Jesus could not sense his presence. The darkness of Satan's lies were there instead. And you remember Ellen White's description of how Satan tortured the mind of Christ. It's your Father doing this to you. You will never see his face again. He's so angry with you because of sin. You will never see his face again. Jesus' greatest temptation was to believe Satan's lie that God would kill him or kill the wicked at the end and that God was torturing his son. That was Jesus' last and greatest temptation. And as he hung there on the cross and reviewed the evidence... You see, now everything hinges on what Jesus says about his experience. Because he's the only one experiencing it. Whatever he says is happening to him. Whatever he does with the information he has and with the torture he's experiencing, whatever he does with that mental agony is going to determine the outcome of us and the entire universe. The whole great controversy hung on what Jesus said in description of his experience. And what did he say? My God, my God, why are you killing me? No. My God, my God, why are you torturing me? No. God, I don't understand. You seem so angry, so vengeful, so unforgiving and severe. I think you must be that way. No. As he reviewed the evidence from the past of his relationship with his father and of all 66, or I should say all 39 books of the Old Testament, he concluded that God was not the one, that it was sin and separation as a result of sin that was leading him to death. And he said in those historic words, Father, I trust you with my entire life. He demonstrated the full truth about God in that statement. Because now we have the experience of someone who has suffered the second death, the full and final consequences of sin. And he doesn't see God as a tyrant. He doesn't see God as the executioner. He doesn't see God as the one who is responsible, the one we have the problem with. He sees it as sin. So what about the fire? I've wrestled with that a lot. And I find, found a statement that I think explains it. I'm, I want to first read a statement in, De, in Desire of Ages where she says, This, that is the final destruction of the wicked, is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. Romans 6.23 the wages of sin, not God, is death. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. 
By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. Where was Jesus' fire? Well, we say, I used to say, God separated from his son, so of course his presence wasn't there. Well, we need to look at that again. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. And she words that very carefully. She's not saying the glory as in dazzling light. She's saying the glory of him who is love will destroy them. She doesn't separate that glory from love. We'll come back to that, but I want to share with you this statement. Signs of the Times, April 14, 1898. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The wrath of God fell upon Christ. This was the hiding of his father's countenance. Is that clear? The wrath of God fell upon Christ. This was the hiding of, his, of the father's countenance. Nothing could be clear in terms of her understanding of God's wrath. Though innocent, Christ was treated as a sinner, that through his merit, sinners, though guilty, might be treated as the loyal, obedient children of God. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. There was a shriek, shrill, and agonizing, and the Son of God expired. He died of a broken heart. His heart was broken by his mental agony. In his great suffering... Christ felt no bang of, pang of bitterness against his father. He felt no remorse for his own sins, but for the sins of the fallen race. But those who refuse the gift of Christ will one day feel the sting of remorse. Entire obedience to the law of God is the condition of salvation. Those who refuse this, notice how she describes obedience here, those who refuse this, who refuse to accept Christ, will be embittered against God. In the Desire of Ages statement, she calls them the rejectors of his mercy. That's what determines our fate. What we do with God's mercy is what determines our destiny. Those who refuse this, who refuse to accept Christ, will become embittered against God. When punished for transgression, they will feel despair and hatred. This will be the experience of all who do not enter into Christ's suffering, for it is a sure consequence of sin. She always puts punishment and consequence together. If you read everything she says, you can read on and you'll find consequence somewhere, almost in the same paragraph. Now we come to her explanation, I think, of what she meant in early writings when she wrote those rather scary words about some burning longer than others. Uh, each according to the deeds done in their body. I don't know, maybe you've never read those statements. My students are shocked to hear them. Um, but they are the ones on which we have based that some burn longer than others. Listen to carefully because she's now explaining those words. We read of the chains of darkness for the transgressor of God's law. We read of the worm that dieth not and of the fire that is not quenched. Thus, is represented the experience, not God's torture, but the experience of everyone who has permitted himself to be grafted into the stock of Satan, 
who has cherished sinful attributes. When it is too late, he will see that sin is a transgression of God's law. He will realize that because of transgression, his soul is cut off from God. He cut himself off. And that God's wrath, the hiding of the Father's countenance, abides on him. This, that is this experience, is a fire unquenchable. And by it, every sinner will be destroyed. There's the fire. Jesus did suffer the fire at the cross. The experience of mental anguish, the experience of being cut off from his Father, that experience is the fire unquenchable. I say, well, I thought the whole world was going to be destroyed and the earth burned up. That's true. Let's go back to the lamb. When Adam killed the lamb... When was the lamb burnt? Before or after he killed it? After. It was the sinner who was always to kill the lamb, even after the priestly system began. It was the sinner who was to kill the lamb, confessing his sins on its head, showing that sin leads to death. When did the fire come? After the lamb was dead. So after the wicked die, then God will clean up the rest. Now, there's still some puzzle pieces to put together, and and the way I'd like to describe the final destruction is like this. The the entire process begins when God brings the new Jerusalem down from out of heaven, sets it down, and the people, the wicked are raised, And you remember there's apparently considerable time they build weapons, uh, they get together in armies, uh, they try to go up against the New Jerusalem. In fact, even before that, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open. They can go in and experience heaven for themselves and find out why they're not there. Ellen White says that it's when they advance in army against the city that the gates are shut. But until then, they are open. So they're allowed to go in and experience heaven for themselves and find out they really wouldn't enjoy it after all. Then, even after they advance against the city, notice how God fights back. They suddenly stop because everybody loves a movie, don't they? And what God does is give them a 3D movie of the history of the great controversy. That whole panorama of the story of the plan of salvation is revealed before them. They see the part they've played. They see the part God has played. They see the whole beginning and end of sin. Particularly, the most important part of the movie is the cross. They see what they are about to experience before they're made to experience it. Now, you imagine what goes through the mind of a person who has accepted Satan's lies about God because I believe that is the crux of sin. Only a person who wants to believe in a vengeful and arbitrary God somewhere deep inside his mind would reject God's mercy. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, is it not? And those whom God leads to repentance through the revelation of his goodness, he leads to trust. He wins us back to love and trust. 
He reconciles us. We're the ones that are hostile and at enmity with God. And so God works to win us back to love and trust. Love and trust is what makes us obedient and understanding and listening children. And we'll talk again this afternoon about the process continues until by beholding we are changed. So it all hinges on our picture of God. Imagine the wicked who have bought into Satan's picture of God. They have even served God out of fear alone. They have served him. They have smothered the rebellion. Ellen White says a solemn submission to the will of our father will develop the character of a rebel. And inside, it's like a child who feels abused by their parents. They may line up and go along, but as soon as they get away from home, they blow up and do their own thing. That's exactly what will happen, I believe, to the wicked at the end. When God reveals the truth about him, that he's not the one going to be hurting them. They have nothing to fear from him. When they realize that all their fear is unnecessary, they realize they can act out exactly how they feel, and God isn't going to do one thing to them. Every bit of their rebellion comes forth from them in the most bitter, the most rancorous and angry ways. They turn on one another, Ellen White says. And that mental agony and knowing that they can't respond to the love of God, they have destroyed in themselves the capacity to respond to his love and mercy, knowing that is what destroys them. It is the fire unquenchable. And then God cleans up the rest. I believe that this is extremely important to understand. I believe that every day we are in one or the other side in the choices we make. We are either, as Paul put it, storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That's not God's wrath we're storing up. You know, we have misread Paul so badly. Um, But if you read that passage carefully, he's saying we become storage tanks of anger. We store up wrath for the day of wrath. And we either repress that and try to pretend we're good, or we are being one to God's gentle love and graciousness. And that brings about a lasting transformation. We'll be talking about that more this afternoon. But I want to turn to one last place, and that's in Revelation. Revelation 22, the last chapter. Verses 10 and 11. We talk about this in, in the, as the close of probation. I want to give a, a new angle on it. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. I believe that before Jesus can come, before God can say those words, everybody must know the truth about who God is and how he treats the wicked at the end. Because only when the world understands they have nothing to fear of God can they be what they really are. No pretense, no facade, no game playing. Don't have anything to fear of God. That's why you may hear see many people who accept this view of God actually turn out to be his worst enemies. 
they might accept it in a certain superficial way, not letting it bring a change. But it lets them free. They can do what they want. And what they do scandalizes us. And, and, we, and I have been criticized, or rather this view has been criticized, of doing that. You're, you're just being soft on sin. And now people are just going to go out and do anything they want. That's right. Would you want them to force themselves to obey and become even greater rebels? There is a time in earth's history when God wants to say, be what you want to be. I don't want to force you into the kingdom. Be what you really want to be when you no longer are afraid of me. And that's when we make our real moral choices. It's not when we're bowing our heads in terror. So that's why I feel this is so very important. And that Jesus cannot come back until the entire world is brought to understand God as he really is. We'll continue this discussion this afternoon. Let's pray. Gracious Father, what a privilege it is to stand before you, to sit in your presence, and know that we have nothing to be afraid of from you. How free that makes us be. May we not miss the opportunity to let your love and the truthfulness of your ways win us back to love and trust in you. Warm our hearts, break down the barriers in them. And may we allow your gentleness, your gentle ways to change us. In Jesus' name, amen.